0: American Vandal from the Center for Mark Twain Studies at Elmira College. I'm Matt Siebel. Twain and T.S. Eliot are two of the most canonized figures in American literature. They are also both Missouri boys who became cosmopolitans ambivalently reflecting upon the culture and history of their native land. It'd be pretty easy to argue that their similarities stop there. Twain had no formal schooling beyond his mid teens. Eliot got a doctorate from Harvard and lectured at Oxford. Twain became increasingly a heretic in politics and religion, while Eliot seemed to grow ever more devoted, both to the Anglican Church and the Western tradition. They worked in different literary genres and diverged in their aesthetic tastes, class affinities, and social affects. Eliot did, in 1950, however, write the introduction to a new edition of Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. And though careful reading shows Eliot's appreciation of the novel he introduces to be largely nostalgic and his praise somewhat faint, the mere association of Eliot near the height of his fame with a book exalted by other American modernists further enshrined it in the mid-century canon of American literature, which was deeply informed by Cold War cultural imperialism. Both Twain and Eliot are literary figures whose reputations were, at least for a time, part of national mythologizing. Arguably the most concrete synchronicity between Twain and Eliot is their literary celebrity. Both achieved an exceedingly rare notoriety during their lifetimes. And for this reason, both had heightened awareness of legacy and took measures to frame posthumous engagement with their work. Mark Twain personally lobbied for changes to copyright and intellectual property law, which gave modernists like Eliot far better and more lasting control over their literary estates. T.S. Eliot entrusted much of his estate to his second wife, Valerie Eliot, with specific instructions for preservation and publication. Until her death in 2012, Valerie carefully controlled circulation of Eliot's private writings and was an editor of critical editions of his works. Multi-volume editions of his complete poems, prose, and letters have either only recently appeared or are currently in production. But Eliot's best laid plans for his literary legacy have been complicated by Emily Hale. Elliot wrote more than 1,000 letters to Hale over the course of 26 years, which she preserved and used to create a sealed archive at Princeton. This archive was opened in January of last year, 50 years after Elliot's death. And in part, because it was closed again two months later due to the coronavirus pandemic, the full scope of its revelations are still unclear. Foremost among them, however, is that Elliot and Hale had a love affair that spanned decades. For at least part of that time, Eliot expressly treated his letters to Hale as a kind of concordance to his poetry, often revealing biographical source material behind his most inscrutable verse. Today, I'm talking to three Eliot scholars about the Hale archive. What it promises for Eliot's studies, as well as the challenge of reckoning with unsealed materials alongside a scholarly tradition which evolved in the interim, and the faint record left by long-dead subjects of new documents—in this case, most evidently Hale herself. Francis Dickey, an associate professor of English at University of Missouri, was at the Hale Archive on the day it opened and her blog for the International T.S. Eliot Society became the first major platform for circulating revelations from the letters as the first wave of scholars read through them. Her essay, May the Records Speak, appeared in 20th century literature in December of last year. It is currently the most expansive of what are sure to be many publications on the Eliot-Hale relationship. Francis also co-authored an essay for Modernism and Modernity on the thorny legal questions of the Hale archive, with John Whittier Ferguson. John is a professor of English at University of Michigan, who, like Francis, is actively involved in the International T.S. Eliot Society, currently as vice president and editor of its newsletter. At this year's convention of the Modern Language Association, the Eliot Society sponsored two panels on Eliot and Hale, one of which featured Francis, John, and our third guest, Megan Quigley, who is associate professor of English at Villanova University. Megan has also edited two recent forums for modernism modernity which seek consideration of modernist authors, and particularly Eliot, through the lens of the Me Too movement. As we shall see, Eliot's treatment of women demands interrogation, even apart from the specifics of his relationship with Hale. For more information about our guests and links to their publications as well as a bibliography of works discussed throughout this episode please visit marktwainstudiescom backslash emily hale the hale archive has been unsealed for over a year now but that's not quite true because the firestone library at princeton where it currently resides has been closed for the majority of that time. When the Hale letters were opened, and especially when Frances started writing her blog in January of 2020, I really thought this is going to be the biggest story in literary studies this year, possibly the biggest story in higher education, a story that's going to have broad crossover appeal. And indeed, mainstream magazines and news organizations did cover the opening. uh, And The New Yorker, for instance, published a great piece by our colleague, Michelle Taylor, But obviously, there have been some pretty epochal events in the interim, and I fear the magnitude of the Hale archive may have gotten lost in the shuffle of COVID and college closures and QAnon coups. I offered a basic overview in the intro, but I want our listeners to get a sense of why this is a big deal, at least for Elliott Scholars. And Francis, it was a big enough deal that you made an arrangement to be there at the opening and you were planning to spend most of the year there. So I wanna ask you first, why was this worth basically putting everything on pause?
1: Well, Matt, we did not know what the archive would hold. And so I think there was a lot of curiosity surrounding it. I I wasn't committed to spending my whole year in the archive if it turned out not to be substantial. Uh, But we did know one thing before the letters were open to the public, which was how many there were. And I think that really stunned everyone. And we began to have an inkling of how important the archive would be because there were over a thousand letters in there. Uh, So that really suggests a very substantial relationship between Eliot and Hale. And that is what we found when we opened up the first letters and started to read. I was in line an hour before it opened it was incredibly exciting uh, to be the first one to walk in there and open up a folder and and start reading. It really was almost as if Elliot had, he had had us in mind when he wrote the first letters to Hale, these were not the first letters he had ever written to her, but they were the first letters in a new um, like mode of relationship in which he confessed his feelings about her and treated her openly as the object of his adoration. He pours out his soul and his heart to her in these opening letters um, starting in October of 1930. These are the most stunning letters of the whole collection. And everyone in the room was just gasping when we started uh, reading his words (laughs) to Hale, in which he says such things as, I am heartily sorry every day and every night of my life for my mistake and fall and for the ruin it has made, but I am not sorry for loving and adoring you for it has given me the very best that I have had in my life. So I I think once we we read the first letters that we we knew, we all knew that it was going to open a tremendous door into our understanding of Eliot's life and a side of him that he had really kept under wraps very effectively.
0: John and Megan, I know that as as I did and as many uh, Eliot scholars did, you were reading Francis's blog posts as she was starting to comb through the letters for the first time and I know that John at least had a plan to, to go to the archive later in the year. Uh, and so as you're sort of consuming Francis's, what were largely summaries at that point, what were some of the things that immediately struck you as questions that you wanted to ask more about regarding these, these letters and their revelations, whether that was once you got a chance to talk to Francis and other people who had read them, or once you got a chance to look at them yourself?
2: I did get to go. It was in early February, um, and I was like you, uh, like all of us, reading Francis's wonderful blog. Um, I'd actually been a grad student at Princeton in the '80s, and my advisor and teacher then, Walt Litz, had talked about these letters, and they were kind of a of a secret in the in the archive that all of us thought. We would never actually see because they were going to be opened in 2020 and you know 1985 who's thinking of 2020 that's never going to happen <laughs> i mean reading francis's notes knowing i was going to be there was better than simple i knew i'd get to read the letters themselves uh and so i knew francis was pointing me ways and i think really uh, it should be said that francis has been a guide for all of us as we sort of went there and you'd say like francis what should i look at in particular but for me as with francis opening that first letter of his on the 3rd of October, 1930, and reading those phrases. And Francis has already read the opening I was going to read a little bit of, but the next, every sentence in that letter is like that. Now there is no need to explain Ash Wednesday to you. No one else will ever understand it. That first letter, I mean, I'm used to working in archives where you have to spend days figuring out what's there and then finding out, oh, the reason I came here is actually not what I'm gonna end up finding. It's something entirely different. I have never worked in an archive that so instantaneously made me think, this is the emotional life of a poet I've studied all my life, suddenly made visible. And there are over a thousand of these letters and each one of them is is two pages or so typewritten. So that's like two to 3,000 pages of intimate spiritual and emotional autobiography. Like, Are you kidding me? <laughs> It's <laughs> just unheard of. Just it was mind-blowing to sit down there and, and, and see that happening.
3: Yeah, um, and I was far away. I was on a sabbatical in Oxford, and I was desperate to be there, but instead I felt like I was there with Francis. I was working allegedly on a book on Eliot and fiction. I had this line in the book proposal that said, one of the greatest fictions that he crafted was that of his own life. And all of a sudden, it was true. I was like, "Wait, wait, wait what?
2: <laughs>
3: I think if there was a line I was going to quote from the letters, it would be the one. if If I have any reputation left in two generations, I want it known how very, very great is, will be, and always was my debt to you. wow. to to have that juxtaposed wow. with his statement coming from Harvard at the same time was just, so much emotional energy there to look into and to think yeah. about.
0: For the listeners, the Harvard letter Megan is referring to Elliot arranged to have unsealed at the same time as the Hale archive at Princeton. And in it, Elliot attempts to characterize his relationship with Hale, often in ways which are contradicted by his own testimony elsewhere. And he tries to discredit Hale and what he imagines she is going to say about him in her commentary. To put it lightly, the whole letter is a pretty bad look, and I'll link it in the bibliography for this episode at marktwainstudies.org, but here's just a taste of the lines which are in direct opposition to those that Megan just quoted. Emily Hale would have killed the poet in me, Vivian nearly was the death of me, but she kept the poet alive. In retrospect, the nightmare agony of my 17 years with Vivian seems to me preferable to the dull misery of the mediocre teacher of philosophy, which would have been the alternative. Eliot's trying to do damage control 50 years into the future about events which had taken place 20 or 30 years in the past, and predictably, he makes a real mess of it. But it also demonstrates how desperately concerned he is about his legacy, about his reputation. I think this is one of the most interesting overlaps between Elliot and Twain. They're their <laughs> celebrity. And, and it's particularly right. relevant to this discussion because for both of them, the fact that large portions of their career, they knew every time they pressed a pen to paper, they were creating a financial asset, right? Twain began to suspect this might be the case in like his mid forties. He knew with absolute certainty for the final 15 years of his life and he acted accordingly. But as (laughs) Francis and John show in their modernism and modernity piece, as all of you just, talked about. Elliot knew from the moment this correspondence started with Hale that the letters he sent to her, he was kind of giving her financial capital. And she kind of was almost like a shareholder in Elliot's literary career from that point forward. The more his star rose, the more those letters she was holding in her vault accrued both relevance to historians and biographers. But by virtue of that real exchange value, both of them, were well aware of this dynamic when the correspondence began and they remained aware of it throughout the next quarter century. And indeed it eventually became a source of animosity between them, arguably one of the key factors in their estrangement. Francis and John reveal that there are some thorny legal questions surrounding these letters, and I'd love to talk about those. But I also wonder what you all think about how this mutual self-awareness that they were on the one hand producing a very intimate, private correspondence, but on the other hand, collaborating in the production of an invaluable historical record, like John calls it, right, almost like a 3000 page autobiography.
2: With the important caveat that Emily Hale could never profit from this in any way fiscally. So one of the heartbreaking things about reading the archive, and I I wanted, we'll have to think about ways to also Talk about what Emily Hale got from this relationship, but one of the things she didn't get from it was any kind of financial hope that something would come from the le- letters from her. And her jobs are pieced together, teaching at women's schools, underfunded, underfinanced, um, under-resourced. She's moving all the time. As Francis has pointed out in, in various places, she also had to simply to lug these letters, which were valuable, of course, around with her. As an unredeemable unre- set of chits for things she could never get money for. So essentially, she's burdened also by this without ever receiving uh, any kind of financial hope from it. And it's a complicated gift that way.
1: Yeah. And she, I mean, she couldn't benefit from it just in terms of her social standing either, because it was part of the nature of their relationship that it had to be kept secret. Right. I mean, that was Elliot's choice. It didn't have to be kept secret. But he wanted it that way and and she respected his choice um, to keep the relationship a secret so she couldn't even really profit um, in terms of her social standing uh, from having this connection with him now he did sometimes do her favors like he gave a commencement address at the concord academy you know he did that obviously as a favor to her because she was teaching there and hopefully she you know, she got some consideration from her employers for bringing a world-famous poet to a private high school <laughs> to give the commencement address, <laughs> um, but that was really the only sort of benefit that she could that she could gain from the relationship yeah. apart from her own feeling of importance, which I think shouldn't be understated. Yeah, She freely expressed to him how strange it felt to her that in the end, her her only significance was going to be the fact that she was yeah. the object of his adoration and the recipient of his letters. I mean, I think she was glad that she had some claim to fame. Yeah. She cherished his letters, um, but that it was also a burden.
3: And such a, and such a humble claim to fame, the way even that she states it. A, yeah. As a figure of the academic precariat, I, I find Hale, right, at, the, at that end. And I think you've talked about this, Francis. she's getting postcards from Eliot in Bermuda. And she, meanwhile, has no place to put her possessions and doesn't know where she's going to be next. So she's not sure where you should send her a letter. And I think studying this right now, given academia and our friends, it's just really powerful to see her at the end. And at the same time, I I, I like, um, Francis what you said about her knowing that her value as an interlocutor for him was so important. When I was rewriting, rereading his note the petty, selfish note, I'm not exactly, he calls it that. To be fair, he he says, he calls it something like that, right? Petty self-centeredness are his own words. He says, Emily Hale would have killed the poet in me. But she kind of gets him back with the most subtle of zingers, if one can even call it a zinger, when she says, I am grateful that this period brought some of his best writing. Well, it didn't just bring some of his best writing, if in fact, They were in correspondence for it was all of his best writing. There is that moment where she got value from that, but of course that wasn't feeding her.
2: The way that Francis and I ended that modernism modernity piece is just with a a couple of sentences from Emily Hale that I think are also speaking exactly to what all of us are are saying. As she's looking back over the collection of letters and the archive itself and all the bad feelings about this, this is in 1956. I find the pain of returning to the past is softened a little by remembering the story has to become a part of the life stream of events, of the mysteriously endowed gift of a personality. It's a capital P there. The fact that innocently and unpredictably, I am involved so closely with this personality is part of the wonder, which I never can get accustomed to. And I think involved so closely with this personality, as Megan says, like she's also, Elliot has just told her, you are the source of my greatest work, from Ash Wednesday on, and you're also referenced in earlier work as well, but it's she's sort of um, like the curator of an astonishing museum collection, you know, herself, or the inspiration of it as well.
0: That's part of what I find so intriguing about this particular unsealed archive, is that from beginning to end, they are aware that they are creating something for a future audience an audience far in the future, and this is the way, again, it's similar to Twain's autobiography, right? He does not anticipate people seeing at least the full extent of his autobiography for a hundred years. And they start writing these letters in 1930, fully aware that at some point, other people will read them. There is that self-awareness, perhaps throughout the full 26 years of correspondence, but they also must forget that at times. And so as scholars who are trying to sort of work through the revelations of this archive, how do you account for the fact that it is simultaneously private and public in a way that very few of the documents we engage with are? Right, Most of the documents we engage with, we recognize as either having a very clear private audience or a very clear general public audience. This is somehow both. And I think that makes dealing with it really challenging.
1: Last night, as I was thinking about what we might talk about today, I, I identified two quotes in, in Eliot's writing that are both uh, relevant to your question and, and actually speak in opposite directions for, towards it. In The Three Voices of Poetry, which was written in 1953, right around the same time that he, was, that he gave his commencement address, Concord Academy, he was writing about love poetry as overheard, That is, so when you write a love poem, it's, you're not just writing it for the beloved, but also for an audience of, of readers. And he says, surely the proper language of love that is of communication to the beloved and to no one else is prose. He has his own letters in mind because that is, you know, at this point he's been carrying on this correspondence with Emily for over two decades, but in a lecture he gave at Yale in uh, 1933 about English poets as letter writers, he said something quite different. The desire to write a letter, to put down what you don't want anyone else to see but the person you are writing to, but which yet you do not want to be destroyed, but perhaps hope may be preserved for complete strangers to read, is ineradicable. We want to confess ourselves in writing to a few friends, and we do not always want to feel that no one but those friends will ever read what we have written. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I guess that just shows what you were saying, that he must have known that he was uh, writing for posterity, but he also didn't want to think of his letters that way. And and occasionally he sort of chides Hale if she says something about him as a public figure. And he he never wants her to think of him as a public figure. Although he he also somehow does want her to think of him as a public figure because he boasts to her about his accomplishments and he sends her newspaper clippings about himself, including hilariously one newspaper clipping in which the journalist mentions that Eliot's manuscripts, because they're so rare, are going to be very valuable <laughs> someday. As you were saying, he, he knows that what he writes to her is uh, of great historical and also monetary value.
2: I think too, Matt, just to, I was just thinking about the other archives that I've Worked, And I think some of the dynamic you describe and that Francis is two quotations pull in different directions about is that Joyce's and Wolf's letters are similarly complicatedly, one feels as though one's sort of violating a personal space when you're reading a lot of those letters, especially the most intimate ones of Joyce's to Nora in 1909 or Wolf's diary entries about her depression or, or her suicide letters where, you know, you think I I have no business reading this. And there's, of course, an anthology now of of letters written to Leonard after Wolf's death, and that's also now published. And I think Wolf was aware of that, and Joyce was aware of that. And yet, I, I do think they're mostly writing, as one feels reading the Elliot Hale archive, mostly they're writing as people writing to each other, with Elliot's sense sometimes manifesting more than, well, we don't have Hale's voice, which is one of the We'll have to get to destruction of the Hale Archive at some point, I hope, too. Yeah, we will. Because one of the last sentences in Wolf's second note to suicide note to Leonard is simply, will you destroy all my papers, which is a very quick gesture towards the destruction, but not the kind of carefully planned destruction you have to do with the volume of material of papers that Hale gave to Eliot or that Wolf had to. Any Any scholar working in an archive, there's always some eerie sense of not being supposed to be there. And especially as the archive veers towards intimacy, and that's something that I certainly felt reading the Hale Archive at, at Princeton, that I had no right to be there, that I was snooping in someone else's material. And it's a very disturbing sense, and it's also, right, one of the costs of being, as as Emily Hale puts it, in, in touch with a personality, capital P. You know? And I tell my students sometimes jokingly, like, as you become famous, you should make sure to curate your own material because after you're, you're gone, everything's gonna be looked at. So of course that's now impossible to delete anything. But yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a fact that they're also very aware of whenever you teach this stuff and you show them these things. And they're like, how do we have the right to read this? Uh, which is a great question. And,
3: and don't edit your life as much as Wallace Stevens so that your archive yeah. doesn't have anything really to look at very much, <laughs> except for right. pre- last drafts. I also teach a class on blogs, diaries, and journals. And, and, and I think that all writing that you're doing is simultaneously multi-voiced, right? You're writing to someone. And especially our students now know how everything is so mediated. So I think that they, they, they realize when they put a writing on Facebook or whatever, on TikTok, that they know that they're doing it for their friends and a larger audience. And they understand the, that kind of intimacy through a, a, a larger screen.
0: I think that's really interesting. And that puts it on a kind of spectrum where for Twain, the whole idea of an archive of a literary celebrity, a self-conscious archive of a literary celebrity, seems like a kind of new and perverse thing. But maybe by the time we get to Eliot, it's kind of taken for granted. And certainly as as you just outlined, and as John said, you know, we can't get rid of anything or we can't promise to have rid of anything. So to some extent, anybody who is a public figure is curating their lives or or should be, right? If they are concerned about legacy as Twain and Eliot obviously were. This is a kind of arc of the the intersection of literary celebrity and the whole notion of a private audience that might be a thing of the past. John led us to something that I, I hoped and I anticipated we, we would talk about. Reading Francis's wonderful piece, this is one of the things that came I came away with, was that Eliot is not the least bit coy about instrumentalizing Hale. Arguably placing her in every archetypal position on the you know, virgin, mother, muse, whore, continuum, right? And the Freudian version of that he self-consciously references, right? So, and he frequently figures Hale as Beatrice and the blessed Virgin Mary. And then with the stereotypical resentment of the artist murdering his muse once the work is complete, he burns Hale's side of the correspondence, letters that he had once said Right, very early in their correspondence, belonged in you know the Bodleian Library at Oxford, a symbolic archive of Western cultural history. So I doubt that any of us were surprised that these letters yielded abundant evidence of Eliot's misogyny. But what surprised me was just how kind of cliche it was. and as Megan said in her MLA talk, we have a feminist imp- imperative to restore Hale's significance. And that's a hell of a project without her side of the correspondence. Yeah. And so I wanted to start with Megan here in, in 2019, before the Hale archive was unsealed, you edited a forum on rereading Elliot's The Wasteland with the Me Too generation. And among other things, you ask whether the Hyacinth girl is a depiction of a traumatized assault victim. We now know, via Francis's work, that the Hyacinth girl is also Emily Hale, right? But the two might not be mutually exclusive. And so how is the project of reading, teaching, and researching Eliot changed by the creepy, cringy gender dynamics of the H- Hale archive that Cannot be ignored.
3: Okay. There's a lot to say about this. I was teaching this week, uh, Sadia Hartman's uh, Wayward Lives, Beautiful Experiments. And um, Mm -hmm. I hope everyone has had a chance to get their hands on that amazing book. And to a certain extent, there is nothing in common between the subjects that Hartman is looking at, right? She calls it the triple jeopardy of economic, racial, and sexual violence that she's looking at photographs of young black women in Philadelphia, New York, and she doesn't have any knowledge about them. And yet she tells their stories from their photographs. And she calls her process critical fabulation. She calls it that in Venus and Two Acts. And all of a sudden I realized that that's also when someone's archive has been destroyed, right? She had an archive, it was there. It was written, years of letters, 46 years of letters, gone. It doesn't mean that we can't and that we don't have a feminist imperative to look into what is our archival data that we can use to fill in her story and even if it's a cliche i like math that you the clichés can inform us about her resistance you can see sometimes through Elliot, you can hear her voice right you might call this abnormal in quotation marks, clearly she has said to him, I'm not comfortable with this abnormal relationship, or you seem to be so focused on divorce as a religious issue. Well, of course she is because she's asking him if the rings they have exchanged mean marriage. So you can find her voice. And through critical fabulation, we can sort of reimagine, I think, reimagine when the archive isn't there.
1: I guess uh, one thing that I would add to what you said, Megan, without, at all wanting to defend Elliot's treatment of Hale. His letters to her and to his mother and Mary Hutchinson show how much he really craved female approval, which was just the other side, I guess, of how he treated women. His letters to his mother are in some ways kind of a template for the ones he later writes to Hale. He feels a closeness to her, of course, as you do with your mother, that he doesn't show with any of his other correspondence. He's very unguarded, um, particularly about his achievements. He doesn't feel embarrassed to tell her when something good has happened or to boast of his position in British letters. Maybe he overestimates his position sometimes.
0: I remember that line. Yeah, I remember that line, nobody since Henry James, right? right? That's that's something (laughs) like that.
1: He he just knows that she wants him to do well. And so he's giving pleasure to her by telling her things about himself. You know, he sends her clippings about his successes. She died in September 1929, and it was almost exactly a year later that he began corresponding with Hale. We've quoted a little bit from the first letter, but in the second letter of November 3rd, which is much longer, he tells the story of the last 15 years of his life including his failed marriage and his conversion. And at the end, he tells her that she reminds him of his mother. He writes, since my mother died, I have felt very much alone, and you will take some of her place for me, too. I loved her very much and felt much sympathy with her and like to think that you and she are somewhat alike. He's just really telling her, you know, I want you to fulfill this um, emotional role for me. My close American confidant who wants me to succeed and sees me just as a private person rather than a public figure, even as they take pride in my in my achievements. So he he transfers his his harmless boasting to her. He also tells her something which he doesn't tell his mother, which is that he writes poetry only for her. And he begs her for letters and for detail about her life and pictures. And sometimes he even has to apologize for demanding too much of her because she's very busy. You know, She teaches classes and runs amateur theatricals and she doesn't have time to sit down and write him letters on a daily basis the way he likes to write to her. Expresses his unsatisfied longing but he's also just craving for her attention and her good opinion and the emotional labor that she, that she is willing to provide him. She gives him something that no one else in his life gives him. I think that this aspect of their relationship is related to something that we already knew about Eliot, which is his dependence on collaborators. There was a book some years ago by Richard Badenhausen about Eliot and his relationship with male collaborators, especially, of course, Ezra Pound and John Hayward, who were instrumental in the composition of The Wasteland and Four Quartets. But I think the different nature of his collaborations with women has meant that we haven't really recognized those relationships as collaborations.
2: That's lovely, Francis. I was just thinking of how Eliot's letters say he knows that his British friends do not really like or get Emily. And you're just giving a wonderful reason for why that confirms his sense that she in fact remains like his mother above and different from those British women who he's hanging out with otherwise and their letters about her are famously when Wolf writes about what Emily Hale's like, they don't like her or get her at all. And it seems like you've just given her a great reason for why that might actually have in some ways been Something Elliot knew as it was, and and took some comfort in. Even sorry, Megan, you were going to say,
3: but also just how different she was as an actress from Absolutely. his mother, right? Yeah. That it, yeah. yeah, give her her yeah. voice back. That she was performing, and and it's that true. he's interested in her as an actress and as someone who knows how to speak on the stage. So the the silencing of her voice after wasn't necessarily what was going on during.
2: I was I had the pleasure of reading. The letters sitting next to Francis, and then Little Gordon was the next seat over. And so we would, whenever we took breaks, oh, I'm I know, so I'm jealous. Sorry, again, it's, it was just unbelievably <laughs> precious time. Um, but uh, we, and none of us ever took more than sort of a bathroom break, but we would talk at the beginning of the morning before they'd open the room for us to go in and read. And one of the things that struck all of us at various points was how immature Eliot felt, how young the letters seemed to us. And that ties in so well, I think, with what Francis was describing as an epistolary relationship. In January of 1931, Elliot is writing to Emily and concerned about what it's gonna be like to see her. And he says, about this summer, my dear, I've already thought about that a good deal before you mentioned it. And I am still as much in the dark as you are. My first thought, it would be wonderful to look into your eyes now, even for a moment. I can hardly imagine it. If we met alone, I do not know what it would be like or how I should behave. I mean, it is one thing to speak as I feel when I write to you and another thing to meet you when I could not behave as I feel. And yet I'm sure I would do so if it were possible and you would see me, you would find me meek and humble, probably dazed and stupid. But I must say, frankly, that such opportunity is unlikely. Of course, I never know from week to week what is going to happen in my affairs. In general, I see very few women and never alone. Not that that is any loss to me, except that with some difficulty, I have tea with Virginia Woolf about three times a year. You do not know how very circumscribed my life is." Again, that letter net doesn't feel to me as though he's thinking about the value of his archive or other audiences. He's just saying, I'm really anxious. I would love to see you, I love it that I have a relationship, I have no idea what a relationship is like, I would like to see a woman, I don't know what I would do. It's just such a mixture of things that were actually, it made me both think, of my own adolescent letters to, to, <laughs> to girls. Tell some more. Do you give some more detail? But, but no, 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 absolutely not. But it, but it also made me think about the, this is back to the sense of the ethics of reading someone's archive. And I think I wrote this in my first piece I wrote about the archive. I couldn't help but think if any of us had 30 years of our own romantic lives displayed before other people, we would find things in there that we didn't like to see encourage everyone to sort of look at archives with the kind of charity and the biggest possible understanding of them. And also that Elliot didn't know when he was going through this phase of his relationship that ultimately he would not marry this woman, that he told her over and over again, I will marry you. And so there's a strange way in which reading against the grain of how we know things come out is something these letters require us to do, I think. That being said, they are immature and they're very hard on Hale emotionally in all kinds of ways.
3: I had written, I was just checking my notes, but exactly next to that same line uh oh, girlfriend. That there was there was a mo- even so. early on, it felt like he he extrapolated mm-hmm. from the individual yes. to the general very quickly. From yes. I'm nervous to see you yes. to. I only see some women to I see Virginia Woolf three times a year for tea to therefore I can't see you. I don't know if this were my friend and Francis beautifully sketches out this sort of movement towards and then running away and, and moving towards and moving away. It happens very early on in the letters. I want to see you. I, oh, I can't, yeah. I can't see you. I don't, I shouldn't see you. And if if it were your friend very soon, you'd say, see a pattern here. So
2: in 1916 in poetry magazine, Elliot publishes La Filia Que Pionge, And that's exactly yeah. The story of this relationship, in one way or another, and it feels like as Megan's saying, you could see this coming, and he could see it coming. It's weird how much, how many times his poems seem to articulate what will then become the life he's living. The,
0: the overdeterminedness of Eliot creating his own narratives from—I know one of the ones Francis references is Dante, right—that he, he seems to sort of prefigure all of these accounts of himself, and then he, he. Kind of feels like he has to carry out the script to some extent. Yeah. Um, and I, I find that yeah, very hard to wrap my mind around. And again, it betrays that he he's always performing to some degree, which has always been something that troubled me about reading Elliot's work. as somebody who has studied confidence men, like I kind of recognize that piece of Elliot prior to the revelations about Hale the woman who was erased by Eliot's biography was Vivian. On the one hand, he destroyed Hale's letters. On the other hand, it's clearly going to open up all sorts of biographical avenues for, for research. Among them, a, a better understanding of his relationship to Vivian and maybe a way of sort of bringing more of her perspective to life than we had prior to this. And so what do you think are the, the sort of significant revelations about his long criticized marriage? That come out of the opening of this archive.
3: Um, okay, so I've been sitting up reading um, Anne Pastor Nick Slater's biography of Vivian and her edited writings called *The Fall of the Sparrow*, which has just come out in the U.S. It, the timing of the book—it's so exciting—the work that is here, but the timing of the book is hard because it—it it was delayed. Yeah. And therefore it comes out after we know about the Hill Archive, but she didn't have access to it when she was doing the book. So it seems like it tells part of a story and there's a big hole there, exactly the hole that you're pointing to. And when we read some of Vivian's own sketches or fictional writing in there portraying her relationship with her husband, it, it makes you wonder if she didn't realize... She is so vilified for the relationship with Bertrand Russell that we have known about and we have wondered and um, past next later really debates when it was consummated and when it wasn't consummated. But in these letters, Elliot admits he'd had an affair. He tried it out. It didn't fit him. And he said the woman went on and and found someone else. And I'm finally rid of Bertie. I actually don't really understand that line, John yeah. and Francis, I don't know if you could, when he said, I'm finally, I, do you know the part I'm yeah. talking about? He's like, I'm finally done with yeah. Bertie because I had that affair. What does that mean exactly?
2: Francis, you go.
3: Elliot reveals
1: to Hale, actually in his second letter that he had an extramarital affair. He doesn't give the woman's name but it was probably Nancy Cunard. But the surprise is that he never breathes a word to her about Vivian's affair with Russell and maybe being done with Bertie is you know, a reference to that. But given how eager he is to confess everything else to Hale, it's just strange that he doesn't say anything about that affair. That means either he didn't know about it, and I think most of us have assumed that he did know because, for example, of his uses of the word adultery in his poetry around the years running up to the wasteland, or he didn't want Hale to know about it you know, either because it reflected badly on him and he, it was too embarrassing for him to reveal it, or maybe because he didn't want Hale to know that he actually had grounds to sue Vivian for a divorce. I have trouble believing that that's the reason because it seems so designing. Her affair made him a wronged husband. He often mentions that since he was the party that committed adultery, that he can't sue Vivian for divorce, only she can sue him. Um, and then he tells Hale that she would never do that. But he never mentions that he also would have grounds to sue her, actually better grounds since the affair went on apparently for, you know, off and on for several years. The The Hale archive raises as many questions as it an- answers um, about Elliot's marriage, actually. Megan mentioned the publication of biography of Vivian as Fall of the Sparrow, which also includes Vivian's writings that she composed to help Elliot with the criterion. She contributed writings, her writings, then they would get paid for them. Whereas Elliot was giving his editorial work for free. That's just an example um, of how the recent you know, archival material that's coming out, not just about Hale, but about Elliot's life more generally, and about Vivian. It shows that she was more than a, what Virginia Woolf called her, a bag of ferrets around Eliot's neck.
0: <laughs>
1: oh, you know, she, 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 she cooked and cleaned. Sometimes they didn't have uh, a servant and she, would, she did all the housekeeping and looking for new flats and so on and encouraging his ambitions. So Hale similarly took on a really major role in his life. It's not similar in the sense that she wasn't doing housekeeping for him, but she was doing kind of um, emotional housekeeping. She was also the inspiration for his dramatic ambitions, which he told her explicitly. She became his sounding board for dramaturgical decisions as he started writing plays in the 1930s. Their infrequent visits became the material for many of what he called moments in four quartets. And after seeing her, he would reflect back on experiences that they had had together in order to fix them in his mind. And those letters became the workshop for future poems. So she was deeply
3: involved in
1: his poetic labor and his dramatic labor.
3: Francis, you and I were totally on the same wavelength. I had a realization this morning that one thing I had not realized until now about the realization of these letters is that what you call the main love or affection of his life was American how did that go over my head I, I I somehow hadn't put that together because am i am I crazy that for for so long I, I had associated his emotional life with two different British women. It reminds me of, I don't know if you guys just saw this, that Jillian Anderson started speaking in an, an American accent when she received the award for um, being Margaret Thatcher uh, at the Golden Globes. And everyone was like, why is she talking like that? That's not her accent. It, it was sort of that revelation of this moment that the American resources we're always there. And you don't necessarily see that when you read Elliot. He, he does the police in different voices. That's great. I, Yeah, totally. I'm convinced that she's the only woman for me. He writes to his father about Vivian, right? And then, so, so they're they yeah, it's two, I'm sorry to cut you off, Francis, but it does seem like two totally separate different stories.
2: But it's the same story too. He He does say at one point, he didn't marry Vivian because she was pregnant. So he wants to know that there wasn't sex between them before. I mean, that that wasn't why he was impelled into marriage. A second letter after Vivian's death that he writes to Emily says, what has surged up in me is the suffering of the past, the bad conscience and the horror with an intense dislike of sex in any form. You know the early title of the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock was Prufrock among the women. I feel like Elliot is now uh, with his archive and and the book about Vivian. It's just astonishing how this confluence of these two women is 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 coming to bear right now. It's an amazing time.
3: I mean, working on Elliot is never never boring. I, I, it's just not. You go to the archive and it is it. it you just you you're you're flabbergasted, intrigued hit by lines that are beautiful and powerful and then simultaneously you're thinking you can't do that. And then also we have the amazing collective volumes of the prose and the letters, but also the poetry where the annotations of the literary illusions go on and on and it's so exciting to hear what he was referring to. But now we have all this new biographical material. What happened to the impersonality of the poet? He's, he's such a figure to look at for that reason. Like he was the image of high modernist impersonality. And yet now we have the Bolo poems and they are racist and they are part of this collection of the work. How does one edit those? Should they be part of the, were they meant to be published? They are now published even more than Hale. Do those change the way we talk about Eliot?
2: There's also a, a temporal unfolding of archive revelations. So I thinking about the ways in which now when we're reading Mrs. Dalloway and we hear the birds speaking to Septimus in Greek, we know that happened to Wolf in her own life. But there's a period where the revelations of letters or new material skews the whole published text in ways that it takes us a while to recover. So I think we're going to be in a period for a while when we read Eliot of and appropriately hearing these other voices really powerfully. And they'll be part of the conversation always going forward. But I think we're in this incredibly exciting, back to Megan's point, recalibration of Eliot's oeuvre based on thousands of pages of new archive material, not just the Hale letters, but as Megan said, the published letters, the prose collections, it'll be a while before we move on to some other place where we can see all this stuff together in balanced form. I don't know what that would be exactly. And whether it should be balanced is another great question that Megan's raising.
0: Your question actually provoked me, John, to, to ask something to you, which had not really crossed my mind until we were chatting. I've often been very persuaded by your argument that we need to take Elliot's devotion seriously. Despite my own inclination to always be suspicious about Elliot as a designer, a performer, a dissembler, uh, a confidence man, I was very persuaded by your argument in mortality and form in late modernist literature that critics like myself, who often dismiss Eliot's devotional term as cynical, callous, maybe a little disingenuous, are mistaken. We overlook how the conversion is interwoven with not only Eliot's penitence, but his striving for the horizons of terrestrial knowledge and experience. And I find that part of your argument extremely persuasive. But as Francis and Megan have pointed out, one way of reading the revelations of these letters is that the strictures of the Anglican church were a convenient way for Eliot to keep the women in his life in the places he wanted them. The Hale letters reveal that Eliot was using the Anglican church strictures on divorce, like a hammer to justify why he had to keep Hale in the role of unconsummated lover, muse, Virgin Mary. In one respect, at least, his conversion was very convenient for keeping his side piece in line, right? And so how do you think (laughs)
2: Yeah, Can I take it all back. right I love it. That's K <laughs> <marvelous.
3: laughs> Matt krill.
2: It's a great, great question. And I kind of I have a two part answer. The second part we'll get to the sort of theological spiritual part of Eliot's poetry. But the first part, one of the painful things about reading these letters, and there are many painful things about reading them, is hearing Eliot's repeatedly, they get harsher and harsher attacks on Unitarianism and on Emily Hale's own spiritual life, which seems to me, just from sort of reading between the lines, sort of inferring what her letters might have been, to be, have been quite genuine and quite deep in different ways. But the cruelty and the rigidity and the thoughtlessness of Eliot's repeated anathematizing of, of Unitarianism, of her own failure spiritually, is a very disturbing thread that runs throughout those letters. Another part of the challenge of reading the letters is that it is almost impossible, maybe it is impossible, to read the letters and to suppress one's knowledge of how this comes out, how it turns out. So to know that in 1947, when Vivian dies, Hale gets this letter from Elliot, I'm going to read a a whole suite of letters, but I'm going to read part of one in just a moment, that um, talks about why he can't, after all, marry her, And that then 10 years after that in 1957 he will actually marry somebody and it's very hard all the way through the 30s as one is reading the story of their relationship unfolding not to know that at, at a certain crucial point all of elliot's protestations will actually turn out to be not fulfilled and that can make one feel as though you're listening to a confidence man all the way through and i think that's that's really unfair. And I, I, I mentioned in my own little piece in, in Time Present a, a while ago about Michael Andre Bernstein's foregone conclusions you know, against reading history apocalyptically as though you always know the answer. So to me, when Eliot is writing to Emily in 1947 after Vivian's death, I just wanna read a tiny bit of this letter from the 14th of February. So uh, Vivian dies on the 22nd of January. So about three weeks later, Eliot writes this letter and this does not seem false to me. At the beginning i found in myself the wish that vivian might die i recognized this to be sinful and overcame it the more easily perhaps because there seemed no reason why she should not live to a normal old age so no alternative to one way of life presented itself there was no question of a choice and during this period also i think there was some partial failure of development in those summers the happiest of my life when i came constantly to camden I was escaping from my life and getting through the little door, and while I was in the garden, I became a young man again, but there were still two lives alternating of youth and of age. I had no idea until the moment came of the way in which a death, the death of someone never loved or desired, would make me see myself. For her, I felt only a detached relief from a life which was hardly worth living, since it was very improbable that more years would have brought her any greater understanding or progress on the road to eternity for the rights and wrongs, for my own share of culpability, or for any harm that I may have done her, I felt merely that the balance had been struck, whatever it was, and that there was no use thinking of that more. I should never know, and on that plane the chapter was indeed closed, but when the coffin was settled in the grave and I turned away, I felt, without emotion in the usual sense, that a great deal that was myself was dead." It goes on, it's a bizarre letter, and I just partly wanted to get it in the podcast, if only so people could realize the complexity and depth of these letters. There's so much self-serving there, so much evasion, so much passive voice, so many contortions of syntax that you think this is a man who's trying to confront something he can't confront. And he's utterly broken by it. And I think it's a genuine crisis for him, not a staged one. So he's not in charge of things here, but it does work for him as you're saying in a certain way. So go ahead, Matt, what were you gonna say? Oh,
0: I was just gonna say it also it contains the the metaphor that's part of your argument, right? That turn, he's turning precisely, away again. Precisely, yeah.
2: That That being said, <laughs> <laughs> to me, the idea that a poet or an artist can't write a spiritual, theological exposition that's better than anything he can attain. It seems to me that's what Eliot's doing from Ash Wednesday, the Ariel poems, Four Quartets, certainly. And those poems get most powerful for me when they take their author apart, when they scrutinize him, when they hold him up for his own examination and he fails miserably. (laughs) So, you know, when he says to, to Emily Hale, Ash Wednesday is for you, that seems to me such, The poem is so much more complicated than a love poem to lady. (laughs) It's a poem that, in a much more complicated, much more profound theological way, interrogates the idea of love and what attachment means, even if, at the same time, it is serving Eliot's interests in certain ways, even if, as his letter that I just read part of, and I could have kept going, he is clearly emotionally immature, is using Emily in various ways, And I would say, as I read Eliot's Theologically Informed Poetry, I kind of turn against myself also and think, where would I stand up if someone were reading my letters with this eye of how are my attachments serving me? What am I not confessing? And it just feels as though Eliot's poetry is not as unfulfilled or unthought through or as personal as Eliot's Confusions in that letter of 1947 to Emily Hale. Yeah, so I think he writes better, theologically deeper poetry than his letters to Emily Hale are. And that's not to say they can't go side by side. That is, an artist can be broken and incoherent and even immoral or abusive in their life, and they can write texts that are profoundly empathic, sympathetic, theologically sophisticated, to all those things. And I think they can go side by side.
1: I agree with you so much um, on that point, John. And yet it also connects with this question of how the life relates to the poetry. I mean, it, it is the same question. Yes. <laughs> I agree that we have to consider them side by side and not always judge one by the other. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I feel like Eliot himself has opened up this Pandora's box yeah. intentionally in the letter. By telling her that she is the subject of passages in his poems and that he's always written for her and that she has inspired Ash Wednesday, Mm -hmm. that Burnt Norton is their poem, their love poem. He's very deliberate about inserting his biography into his poems after the fact. I mean, that's the thing that I find so amazing about this archive is that much of it, especially in the early years, seems like a deliberate commentary on his own poetic work almost planned out in advance to trump any critical work that has been done on his poetry in the (laughs) intervening years so that he gets to come back from the grave and tell us what it really means.
2: (laughs) To read Ash Wednesday after Elliot's um, letter to Emily Hale about her being Essentially, lady, as it were, or mm-hmm. to read the Little Gidding passage that I'm going to read in a second. With the knowledge of the Hale archive there and what the particular references of Eliot's self scrutiny, mm-hmm. they just become more profound to me. So when he's saying, I used to teach Little Gidding before the archive, this passage where he's talking about, you know, as the, the compound goes to telling him the gifts reserved for age, and he says, the rending pain of reenactment of all that you have done and been, the shame of motives late revealed and the awareness of things ill done and done to others harm, which once you took for exercise of virtue. And I know you all know this passage well. That passage just has taken on a, a torque to it and a profundity to it that I know the specific reference that I can now summon to that place. And I think as a reader, I summon my own examples from my own life when I'm reading poetry like this. And I think, yeah, this is a poem about accounting and calling oneself to account. And I know those things in my own life Mm -hmm. and can substitute them in there. And I do every time I read it. Mm -hmm. And now I have also particular knowledge of Eliot's possible reference there, not certain reference, but possible reference. Certainly he's given us ample material so that that material in Ash Wednesday or or, uh, Four Quartets becomes simply more profound as I teach it now, as I will teach it.
1: Because he's calling himself to account there.
2: It's possible, I suppose, to say he is saying this as a way to protect himself from anything worse. But when I read those sentences that he's saying, I think, no kidding. I know exactly what you're talking about, T.S. Eliot, because I've read your letters to Emily Hale. And I know the, the sense of the rending pain of reenactment. It's clear, again, in the syntax and the evasion and the figuration in that letter I was just reading from where he, a little bit later he talks about it, that he feels as though as a, a mummy who has suddenly fallen into dust once the grave has been opened. And it's just like these figures are so macabre and grotesque and maybe overwrought, but also speak to me of someone who's broken and who's, who, who knows that he is in these letters. Even if I know 10 years later, he's going to uh, have a happy ending for those eight, those eight last years of his life, it's not quite fair to say, yeah, when I'm reading the 1947 letters, I know about those last eight years.
1: It is a strange thing that he seems more aware of himself in his poetry than he does in his letters.
2: Yes, that's so well put.
1: I mean, you would expect letters to your closest intimate to be the most honest writing you could do, but actually, I wouldn't describe them exactly as dishonest, but he's so often trying to make himself come out in the best light. And also not to give her any advantage (laughs) because he knows that she has claims on him that he hasn't adequately acknowledged or satisfied Mm -hmm. and he can't ever afford to let her right you know bring those up he's very keen on beating her down whenever she wants to bring up you know his past promises and what he owes her and she always does it in a very gentle way i mean we don't have her letters but it seems like she's not browbeating him but she just wants to know like yeah. You know, where's all this going? And and he he doesn't want to answer.
2: Yeah, I think if his poetry was as, was as immature and manipulative uh, <laughs> as his letters, I would not be reading his poetry.
3: <laughs> no, I'm serious. On in the opposite direction. <laughs>
2: no, I think you're so right that his poetry is much more emotionally, theologically, morally, ethically profound than mm-hmm. his letters are. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the discoveries in the archive, too. And I think it's true of other writers. I mean, it's famously true of, of Joyce. I'm reminded of,
0: <laughs> early in our conversation, Francis brought up a moment where Eliot says that, you know, prose is the, the natural language of love. And so right, we yeah. take for granted that... that <laughs> Not for, uh, Romantic love is, as you say, (laughs) immature adolescence, (laughs) inferior to the subjects of poetry, right? Then that would rationalize why you can despise his letters and still, or despise some of the content in his letters, the perspectives in his letters, uh, and still celebrate the poetry.
2: I mean, I was just teaching The Wasteland yesterday, and the way you can take that poem and make arguments for women's voices is... It's so much in that poem. It's hard nowadays to not see that. Mm-hmm. And then you read the Hale archive and you're like, what the hell? Do not show this to your students right now because uh, mm-hmm. at this point they're excited about him. <laughs> Quiet, Tom, keep that thing locked. Don't open Firestone Library. Yeah, he would
1: have been <laughs> really happy at the end to be able to burn those letters himself. Yes,
2: indeed, indeed, Francis. I, yeah. could, I so much agree. It's so important for figures
0: like Elliot and Twain who there has often been the temptation to place them in a kind of mythic canon and to have these archives, as you all said, there, there was going to be a massive revision to Eliot's studies regardless, even before the Hale archive, just by virtue of the letters coming out, the the complete prose, the the Christopher Ricks volumes of poems, right, there were already these archives being unfolded before we got the sort of surprises of the Hale letters. And so for what are tempted to be almost propagandistic, nationalistic figures like Elliot and Twain, because of their massive influence and in literary celebrity, to have them revised at this later date is really healthy and, and, and hopeful in some ways. And that leads me into the sort of question that I wanted to close with, which is it's obviously de rigueur in literary studies, particularly since the post-structuralist turn to qualify every reading as contingent, polyphonous, potentially dialectical, to some degree hypothetical, but (laughs) despite their protestations to the contrary, it's quite evident that literary critics, and perhaps especially historicist literary critics, feel something personally at stake in the accuracy, or at least the feasibility, of their interpretation. And as such, archival recovery always poses a real threat to the scholarly record. Uh, and an example of this in Twain's studies is the Testa man- Manuscript, a portion of Twain's original draft of Huckleberry Finn, which disappeared for almost a century. And when Barbara Testa found it in her attic, it falsified some arguments about when various portions of the novel had been written and therefore how they might be associated with biographical and historical events, arguments which had in some cases been widely accepted for decades. I'm going to hazard a guess that the Hale archive is going to be exponentially more disruptive than that. And I, I, I don't expect you to name names, but what are some conventions, I mean, feel free to, but what are some conventions in Eliot studies which you think are endangered by Hale?
3: Well, my MLA paper was a little bit about this, like what we've gotten wrong. And what I hope I ended up saying was that we have to be, have generous thinking as well. Like mm-hmm. we didn't know. And and so shaking fists at like, why didn't you account in the first volume of T.S. Eliot's letters, which sat by my desk as I wrote my undergraduate thesis on Wolf and adrian Rich, there was no picture of Hale in the entire thing. We knew there was an archive of letters, why is there no picture of her? Why, why did she not appear in the Ackroyd biography Where, or in any photographs, any evidence of her? So I feel like while we have to not take ourselves so seriously that we think we would have done better, knowing that this archive was sitting there, it's possible to look critically at our editions and our scholarship that ignored Lyndall Gordon's essential work actually, John, you were just talking about this, that that there was sort of dismissal towards that work.
2: Yeah, kind of sexist dismissal of, I mean, Ron Shuhart also talks about her in ways that are appropriately important as Emily Hale. Um, but I remember in the 80s, the discussion around the kind of work that Lyndall was doing and the kind of work that biographers who were talking about, about Emily Hale, uh, the few people who were mentioning her, was considered sort of like it's women who pay attention to the life, not the art. I think the whole idea that impersonality and of the vanishing poet will be brought importantly into question by this archive. And Francis, uh, there's a piece that we're going to publish in time present, the newsletter of the T.S. Eliot Society uh, in an upcoming issue that's uh, maybe, Francis, you could talk just briefly about that. But it's, it's really interesting that the foundational idea of new critical impersonal poet not the not the life work comes out of eliot and then this whole archive collapses some of those distinctions or not as you'll see in our debate that we stage in the uh, in the in the newsletter francis do you have a I'm, I'm giving you an intro here <laughs> if that's okay
1: i mean i think we're going to unfortunately continue talking about tradition in the individual for, a, for <laughs> as long as we talk about eliot i mean these letters have really guaranteed that I've made it a point, in my own scholarship, never to mention that essay,
0: <laughs> with one exception, calling it useless, right?
1: I did call it useless, and I <laughs> you know, in my article, and I've been, uh, you know, I've been, you know, reprimanded by a number of of people for that, and I find it interesting. I loved it. Well, I find it interesting how how important Eliot's concept of impersonality is, but I yeah. also grant that actually the letters show us the the truth of that essay, but in a very different light. And I think what we didn't realize is how deliberately biographical or autobiographical his poetry is. So that when he writes, the the more perfect the artist, the more completely separate in him will be the man who suffers and the mind which creates, the more perfectly will the mind digest and transmute the passions which are its material how literal that is. <laughs> like he's, he's really being literal there that mm-hmm. the passions, his passions are the material of his poetry. I mean, it's not passion in general <laughs> or a passion that someone else might have. It's um, and his experiences and his suffering in a very detailed way. You know, one thing that I've realized is that he wrote Tradition in the Individual Town just six weeks after completing Gerontian. And he feels to hail in the letters, as far as I can tell, unprompted, yeah. the identities of two of the figures in that kind of enigmatic poem. Mr. Silvero, who he says is Matt Pritchard, um, a man he knew in Paris, who was a friend of Isabella Stewart Gardner and former assistant director of the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. Um, someone who kind of fascinated him when he was a student in Paris, but also repelled him. You know, there was probably some homoerotic attraction going at least in one direction um, in that relationship. And so Mr. Silvero's presence in that poem is, for Eliot, significant. He writes several times to Hale about his feelings for, um, for Matt Pritchard, his negative feelings about him. In in another copy of the poem, he drew lines to the other names in the poem and wrote the names of the real people that they referred to, and then later erased them, or someone erased them. All of this is just to say, Eliot was really deliberate about making his poems about his life, but he changed the names. (laughs) And like, is that transmutation? <laughs> is that extinction of personality, or...
0: Or is that just protecting yourself from libel? <laughs>
1: exactly. Nutrition <laughs> in the individual town is still relevant, but it's just relevant in a really different way than we had originally thought, and that gave shape to English studies um, throughout the middle of the 20th century.
2: And I think one of the cautions with the archive, and with any newly opened archive Ula Dido and Gertrude Stein, where Dido, who knows the archive better than anybody on Stein, can actually do the Matt Pritchard thing with almost every reference in any of Stein's, even her most gnomic and resistant to reading text. So in The Language That Rises in her amazing book on Gertrude Stein, that only she can use or read in a certain strange way because she makes connections that you could never make from the page. As I'm reading Dido, I'm sort of in her spell, but then I get away from it a little bit and I think I'm actually not approaching what I feel when I'm reading Stein's own pages. And I think the mystery of Mm -hmm. the the figures ghosting in and out of Garantian, to me, is not answered by having Matthew Pritchard Pritchard sort of summoned there. even though it matters that I know that there's a transformation going on here in sleight of hand and that tradition and individual talent, in some ways, is sort of explaining what he's doing in a sort of coded way. There will now be in new editions of Garantian, perhaps, footnotes saying, this is Matthew Pritchard, and then I get to know things about his life, his fine arts history. I might even make some connections with, with decadence and with <laughs> art and with figures who are aesthetes in some way or another that Eliot is haunted by in Garantian, and you could do some stuff with that. On the other hand, I would also want to insist to my students that his name is not Matthew Pritchard and you can't have a Wikipedia entry on him. He's this other character. And part of Elliot's point is that he's floating in some anxiety-motivated space of unnamed threat, which is queer, which is aesthetic, which is compelling, which is seductive, which is mirroring, all those things. And it's like... It's the problem of the footnote where you're like, oh, that is actually so and so. And you're thinking, Yeah, or you know, the adulterated word in that poem is really in reference to, you know, Vivian's adultery. It's like, yeah, but but it's not also.
1: <laughs> Anyone who writes about Elliot would absolutely hesitate to say, well, Mr. Silvero is Matt Pritchard. But the amazing thing is that's what Eliot says. <laughs> Mr. Silvero is Matt Pritchard. <laughs>
2: But but he is saying it, Francis, in a love letter to a particular person. And I think the performative nature of love letters is also always worth weighing here. Mm -hmm. Elliot saying to Emily Hale, this is your poem. (laughs) Like, which part of Ash Wednesday is mine again? I forget. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want some of it. Thank you very much. Um, It's such an important register that it's to a particular person who's, in all the complexities of whatever this means, a beloved audience. <laughs>
1: it's true, but, and, and that's absolutely true of all of the places in the letters where he tells her that she's the subject of his poem. Yes. But in Durantian, I mean, she has no stake in that poem. True. For sure, she never had any idea what he meant. Yeah. I mean, it's just way too, yeah obscure for her. He says, in a poem I I once wrote called Gerontian. like he doesn't, he assumes (laughs) she hasn't read it, (laughs) nor will she read it. (laughs) He's, but he's putting that there for us. And maybe we need to watch out for what he, how he's trying to manipulate us. It's in that early phase of his letter writing where he seems like he's writing for posterity, writing into the record, things that he wants future critics to know. It's at that time that he's, he's telling her I'm gonna save all your letters and and I want you to save mine and we're gonna put them together in the Bodleian <laughs> Library. <Yeah.
2: laughs> that's a great point. I think in some ways what Francis, I was just looking back at the sentence in tradition and individual talent, which for me, a new word has risen to the surface of it. The f- famous sentence that everyone who's listening to this will know or should know or has in their head already, uh, the progress of an artist is a continual self-sacrifice, a continual extinction of personality. And I think when I first, read that and for many years. I, it was personality that got the emphasis, but it's continual that now for me is where all the energy is because the Hale archive shows us how much work it takes to keep that material either at bay or to transmute it or to do something with it. And it can be argued that Elliot did in fact transmute his, his life such that the poems remain distinct from that life. But once you've seen the archive, uh, you know, after such knowledge, what forget, you cannot go back to reading the poems the same way because now Emily Hale is, is on that page with the Virgin Mary and with Elliot's mother and with Vivian, <laughs> you get this sort of concatenation of new voices coming into the poem, which feels to me like a, a richer, more powerful and more interesting, back to Megan's wonderful side that is never boring, a, a more interesting way to think about um, what you're reading on the page. Um,
3: Yeah, and and they're going to be ramifications for other writers, of course, too. I Actually, I'm giving a paper at the Wolf Conference, Francis, based a little bit on the revelation that you said that Elliot was supposed to visit Virginia Woolf the final week of March when she ended up um, dying by suicide and that he canceled because he was ill. And then further on in the letters, he writes to Hale, She's asked him to make Little Gidding like a little bit more cheerful than the other war poems. She's like, enough already. Like it's super depressing. Can it be a little bit less demoralizing given all that we're living through in this wartime? And he wrote back and said, actually the past eight months have been really hard. The death of Virginia Woolf has been much harder than he had thought it would be. If in Little Gidding, he is processing midwinter spring that the beginning it, it almost seems like a description wow. of w- when virginia will committed suicide uh and then there's water image, and so i think and then he and then he says uh. he's she was he was too close to her to write an appropriate obituary. She was like a family member. So some of this we had known before, but some of it and other writers who this archive will affect as well. But for me, that was the one that really hit me. Yeah,
2: I do have the first lines if you want to. Yes, I mean, please. Just, it's astonishing, Megan, I love that. Her spring is its own season, sem paternal though sodden towards sundown, suspended in time between pole and tropic. When the short day is brightest with frost and fire, the brief sun flames the ice on pond and ditches in windless cold that is the heart's heat, reflecting in a watery mirror, a glare that is blindness in the early afternoon.
0: been talking with Francis Dickey, Megan Quigley, and John Whittier Ferguson about unsealing the archive of T.S. Eliot's love letters to Emily Hale. For more about our guests and about this episode of The American Vandal, please visit marktwainstudies.com backslash Emily Hale. Thank you for listening.